You are spending a click on 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 17, Colors You Can't Imagine. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week's episode is Sunset. The Jinteki operation that costs zero is just one influence and allows you to choose a server and then arrange the ice protecting that server in any order. The flavor text is, You haven't run until you've seen the cyber sun drift down behind the great city, the space around you rippling, with Colors You Can't Imagine, a quote from Kate Mac McCaffrey. Uh, Sunset's got some really nice art on it, but it's not really a very good card, or rather, it's great at what it does, but what it does is fix a corpse mistakes. And so it's not a card that sees a lot of play, because the idea is that you put your ice down the way you want it to start with, rather than fix it later. But it seemed appropriate because I've been talking about ice so much, and in fact, we're talking about ice quite a bit more in this episode, although not ice only. We're going to be shifting into a focus on a particular type of, a particular archetype and a particular deck. Anonymous tip. Rototurret. Rototurret is a, an HB sentry, and it costs four, hat to res, is a strength of one, and has two subroutines. The first is trash a program, and the second is end the run. Now compare it to the basic barrier ice wall, which costs only one to res to end the run, but also has a strength of one. Or Enigma, which costs 3 to res, but has a strength of 2, and has that second subroutine. It helps us to see that sentries are more dangerous. That cost of res cost of 4, that program trash subroutine, is really where it is. It's a very powerful card. Uh, what's the best way to play with it as a corp? Well, you can use it as a simple gear check, because it has that end the run for sentries. There aren't too many sentries that just end the run. Uh, in fact, as we discussed last week, it's just two, Rototurret and Archer. But obviously the really potent subroutine on Rototurret is the program trash. Naturally, that's the one you really want to go get to go off most of the time because it can truly wreck a runner's game plan. But how to do it? Well, don't just feel like you have to res the ice just because the runner's encountering it. Do you need to end the run so badly that you don't want to hold that possible trash a program in reserve for when the runner has a program to trash? Perhaps against a shaper, they've installed magnum opus and run first on their first turn. Well, that's a great time to res rototurret because, yeah, kill that magnum opus. 
or if they're running without a sentry breaker at all. It may not happen all that often, but if it does, what a great position to be in. Or if it happens in a situation where they don't have the money to to break it, it's not super expensive. Uh, yes, the strength is one now as opposed to zero. Uh, that's mainly to get it out of the reach of easy kills by parasite. But still, for your typical sentry breaker, your typical killer, which you remember are weird, uh, let's say they're using ninja. Well, now that it costs one, ninja has to spend four to get through it rather than just two, and three just to break the trash program subroutine. That could be really potent. Not something to sleep on. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Rototurd's potent combination with Corporate Troubleshooter, where you can use some money to boost the strength of Rototurd way out of the runner's price range, and then it can be very effective as a surprise program trash. Well, how to deal with Roto Turret as a runner? One basic piece of advice is always be careful about running when you don't have a killer. You've heard this one before. There are other sentries out there that you don't want to faceplant necessarily. You can get through. Most sentries are just taxing, but the tax can be a killer. Ha ha. Can be it can be very difficult. you know, even something as basic as Neural Katana in the early game, do you want to lose three cards? Well, maybe you don't mind losing three cards, but just being prepared for it. So one way to deal with Rototurd is to get a killer out. Another way is just not to have any programs out. Right? Then it just becomes an expensive ice wall. And that's not bad. It's costing the Corp 4, especially in the early game. That might allow you to get into a different server. So... I think the best way to deal with Rototurd is just to remember that it exists and not to be surprised if it suddenly appears. Well, there is some random anonymous jabber about Rototurd. Archived Memories Glacier I'm going to here just read an article from Stimhack from May of 2014. So still fairly early in the life cycle of Netrunner, but at this point, I think there we're all the way through two uh, cycles, at least. Yeah, maybe maybe even up to the second deluxe box. It's by I don't know how to pronounce this name. I sort of always pronounce it Medio Hardcore, spelled M-E-D-I-O-H-X-C-O-R-E. Anyway, the title of the article is Tower of Defense, and uh, let's get into it. When we first learned to play Netrunner, one of the most instantly appealing corp strategies was Glacier. We didn't know what to call it at the time, but it seemed like such an obvious game plan. Build a remote server with super impenetrable ice piled on top of one another and start advancing agendas in it and let the runner sit back and watch while we won the game. It's so intuitively obvious and seemingly fair that some people have taken to describing this sort of gameplay as real Netrunner as opposed to fast advance, which I suppose those people think is something else entirely. However, 
our first glacier decks inevitably ran into some major issues. Specifically, that if the runner builds a rig and simply sits on a ton of money, they're going to be able to steal our priority requisition as soon as we install Advance Advance It. This article is going to help you learn the ways around this sort of issue so that you can effectively build and play glacier decks. Defining Glacier Simply put, glacier decks try to build a super expensive remote server with a stack of medium to large-sized taxing ice and choke the runner on resources so that they can't afford to make very many runs on it. Rather than rushing the runner to install a full breaker suite by using cheap ice of varying types, we concede that the runner will eventually be able to get into any server we build and just try to make sure that they won't be able to do so efficiently enough to steal too many of the agendas we try to score. Usually, the Glacier strategy enables the corporation to play larger agendas than other decks, allowing us to win in three scores rather than the more typical four needed by Fast Advance, Never Advance, or Rush decks, which frees up deck space for more economy to help us res our bigger pieces. The inherent weakness of this strategy is that we don't necessarily have a way to pressure the runner to break into our centrals. If we don't have a way to score our agendas directly from our hand, the runner doesn't have to try to break into HQ or R&D if they don't want to. Once they realize our game relies on remote play, they can stockpile their resources so that when we inevitably install an agenda in our remote and advance it, they will be ready for us. How are we supposed to deal with a runner who just sits back and clicks their opus? As the Glacier player, we have to find a way to gain inevitability. Winning, eventually. Inevitability is the strategic consideration that, all things being equal, one deck will beat another given enough time. Jeff Cunningham, Magic the Gathering Pro Tour veteran. Sounds simple enough, right? If we can find a setup that will win the game if left unchecked for enough time, all we have to do is avoid losing to random accesses, and we will win the game. The trouble is, setting up true inevitability is extremely difficult in Netrunner. It's very difficult to ever hard-lock someone out of the game. As things progress, the runner will get more and more random accesses, and eventually, that will be enough to win. It's not magic. We can't simply wipe their entire board, draw a ton of cards, and hold up counter spells for the entirety of the game. We can rarely hope to make even one server truly impenetrable, let alone lock our opponent out of every single one. Furthermore, runner economy cards like Cotty Jones are so efficient, it's difficult to imagine how we as the corporation could gain any sort of incremental advantage in the long term. There are few ways to make a server more expensive, faster, than a runner can use their magnum opus. So let me just parenthetically jump in here to talk about Cotty Jones, spelled K-A-T-I, and often pronounced Katie Jones, but we've been told by the designers, I think it was Damon Stone, 
that it actually is pronounced Kadi because it's based on a person that he knows and that's how her name is pronounced. So that's how I'll pronounce it. Anyway, this is a resource that's coming in the fifth pack for the runners. It's two, cost two. It says, click, place three credits on Kadi Jones. Click, take all credits from Kadi Jones. Cannot use Kadi Jones more than once per turn. So you can spend some turns, once one click a turn, just dropping money on there, and then eventually take all the money. We'll talk about it in more detail when we get to that pack. Back to the article. To win the game eventually in Netrunner, we not only have to have a very strong long-term economy and game plan, but also put stress on the powerful runner economy, which we can do almost exclusively by inducing them to run through our servers. The easiest way to get a runner to do this is to install and advance something in our remote. But there are really a number of ways to do it, aside from just letting them steal an agenda upon getting in. I have identified four types of things that we can install in our remotes to help us put pressure on the runner to actually run us, hopefully paying a large price to get not a lot of benefit. They are, in no particular order, economy assets, protection upgrades, advanceable non-agendas, and agendas themselves. Economy Assets One huge benefit of having expensive remotes is that we can put assets in them while we are not scoring in them. This is perfect, because some of the most powerful economy cards in the game are assets. It's going to be hard to maintain inevitability without a strong, long-term economy, and runners know this. Many times, the best runner strategy against a glacier deck is to choke their economy. And to do this, they will have to trash things like Melange Mining Corp, so that we can't fund our ice towers. In the early and mid-game especially, inducing the runner to break into our remotes to trash EVE campaigns and melanges is going to be our primary way of putting pressure on the runner. Well, let me step out for just one second to mention EVE campaign, another card that comes in the fifth pack. It's like Adonis campaign, but bigger. More money, more to res, more money on it, more expensive to trash. Continuing. Ideally, we put this pressure on the runner before they are entirely set up, so that they have to set up faster and less efficiently than they otherwise might have. If we put a melange behind a wall of static, we could get the runner to search up their corroder with their self-modifying code. Ah, that comes in the deluxe box, so let's say test run, rather than their magnum opus. If they have to draw more cards and then click for credits to install their economy engine after the fact, we have them right where we want them. The main trouble with economy assets are that they occupy a remote server in such a way that we can't also install an agenda in that server. Self-trashing assets like Adonis Campaign are great for our scoring remote, but the most powerful economy assets namely Melange Mining Corp. and EVE Campaign, don't use themselves up so quickly. And so we might have to create a secondary remote server, or even trash our economy when it comes time to score. 
Protection Upgrades Once you build an expensive remote server, these guys are going to cost the runner far more than an additional piece of ice might. They are the bread and butter of the glacier deck, the missing piece that turns an insurmountable economic advantage into scored agendas. I might even go so far as to say that a pure glacier deck can't possibly function well without these cards. This is what we missed in our Corset HB Big Ice deck, the bit that Glacier needs to become truly competitive. The idea behind the protection upgrade is that the runner might be able to afford to get in once, but not twice or three times. If the runner has 20 credits and our server costs 15 credits, we can't safely try to score our agenda. But with the help of an ash, what was once an easy choice for the runner becomes a lot more difficult. Do they come and get the ash as soon as we install it, before it gets too expensive? Do they try to race our economy so that we can't afford to trace them away when they break in? Do they just give up on our remote altogether and try to win on centrals before we can get to seven points? When we pose these sorts of difficult questions to the runner, we're doing our job right. As well as Ash, there are other protection upgrades available in Corporate Troubleshooter and Red Herrings, though for various reasons these cards are not quite as strong. Advanceable Non-Agendas The easiest way to get a runner moving is to advance something. The prospect of the corp scoring a priority requisition is often unacceptable to a runner, so if we can play something in our server that looks like a large agenda without actually being one, we can potentially induce an expensive run without putting our agendas at risk. I hesitate to call these cards traps or ambushes because they are not always traps. In fact, potentially the best example of an advanceable non-agenda is Grendel Refinery. All right, so here parenthetically, that comes along a bit later. Uh, we're into the second cycle before that one shows up. But it is a Wayland card that you can advance. And then on your turn as the corp, you can click it and take all, for every advancement token, you get four credits. So it's actually like an economy card that's masquerading as an agenda. Not only does Grendel Refinery look a whole lot like an agenda, but if the runner ignores it because they suspect a trap, don't think they can get in, or prefer to attack us on other fronts, we can still reap economic benefit. Traps, such as Aggressive Secretary, might not be as invariably decent as Refinery, but the upside can be ridiculous. If you can trash two of the runner's most valuable programs, winning the game becomes pretty trivial from there. However, most advanceable non-agendas run into issues. They can be ignored or exposed, and they're often easy to trash if accessed from centrals, making us more vulnerable to those attacks. Ambushes, in particular, are quite literally hit or miss. And that can be a problem if we're looking to avoid variants and win a good majority of the time. Agendas. These are not the ideal 
run inducers because they help the runner to win the game, but that doesn't mean that we should never try to induce an economically draining run with an actual agenda. If we can get the runner to run and steal a brain trust, breaking their bank, and we can score a Nisei Mark II in that same server soon afterwards, it's painfully obvious who is on the winning end of the exchange. Think of the run-inducing agenda as a trade. If the runner can get in once, but not twice, and we have two agendas, we can allow the runner to pay to steal one agenda so that we can score the next one. The upside of using an actual agenda, as compared to a Grendel refinery or an ambush, is that if the runner decides for whatever reason not to run it, we actually get to score the agenda. The most prominent reason to use this tactic is that we are playing agendas in our deck anyway. If we have two agendas in HQ, and HQ is a lot softer than our scoring remote, it's much more appealing to have the runner break into the remote to steal the agenda, rather than snipe them out of HQ as they pile up. Furthermore, all other things being equal, if the runner and the corp both score one agenda apiece, those agendas are both removed from the game and are no longer at risk of being stolen. Often, as in the previous Brain Trust Nisei example, all other things are not equal, as in the larger card pool, agendas are often either difficult to steal or provide a tangible benefit to the corp for scoring them without proving any such advantage to the runner, aside from the points that they are worth. Building Glacier Now that we know what the game plan is, it's time to put together a glacier deck. We're going to need agendas, economy, ice, and protection. We're also going to need three Jackson Howard. And at this point, the article delves into a long Jackson Howard digression, which I am going to ignore, because again, that card is not coming until our seventh pack, the first pack in the spin cycle. When we put together our agenda package for Glacier, we should be looking to score three times and win. We're not building a tower so that we can score a one-pointer. We've got a big server, and we should look for big agendas to put in them. I believe that the best agenda suites are often either four three-pointers and four two-pointers, or two three-pointers and seven two-pointers. These setups make it as easy as possible for us to win the game in three scores, That's scoring two two-pointers and one three-pointer. Our agendas should play into our plan, taxing the runner, securing inevitability, and building ice towers. Priority requisition and accelerated beta test do a great job of helping to build our ice towers as we score, so that if the, if the runner tries to amass resources for the late game, we can make things even harder on them at the same time as we dirtle a couple of ton turns away scoring. Certain agendas in the full card pool are great at protecting themselves, which is just phenomenal for a glacier deck, as our central server agenda density tends to go up as we set up in the mid-game and we need all the help we can get. Over-advanceable agendas, like Project Atlas and Vitruvius, are pretty good for us, as we are often in the position to be able to score them with a lot of counters on them. Nisei Mark II's counter is positively ridiculous when all of your servers are super taxing, as it will blunt the runner's remote server 
run or Maker's Eye Glory Run. For our economy, we should take advantage of both our long-term aspirations and our remote building plan. Assets like Adonis Campaign, Eve Campaign, and Melange Mining Court provide a huge benefit if we can adequately protect them. Pad Campaign and Marked Accounts might not always be the best cards for us, as they aren't totally reliable if unprotected, but if we draw them early, they can potentially last forever, and in a long game, that can translate into a whole lot of money. Grendel Refinery might not be terribly reliable either, but it does have huge benefit of being able to induce runs. For our operations, we should go as big as we can. Hedge Fund should almost certainly be a three of everywhere, of course, but aside from that, we should look to cards like, well, cards we haven't seen yet in, in the 2.1 card pool, rather than things like Beanstalk Royalties. There are cards that give more money than Hedge Fund, is my point. When our operations have to compete for deck space with huge money makers like Eve and Melange, they should get us a whole lot of bang for our buck and do a whole lot to help to fund the protection of the assets in the mid-game, even if that means rezzing large eyes early on. I have found the sweet spot for protection upgrades to be in the 3-5 to five range. 3-ash works pretty well for an HB deck. Corporate Troubleshooter is a neat trick if you have some nasty destroyers, but I would never play more than two in a deck as he is very situational. When building your deck, don't forget about the presence of archived memories, which you can use as the fourth or fifth protection slot, working on the assumption that they will be able to retrieve a trashed protection upgrade later on in the game. This isn't just a nice influence-saving trick. Having some amount of recursion is nice because you can let the runner into your centrals without fear of your protection being trashed. Ice-wise, glacier decks tend to want a lot. You're going to need to tailor-make your servers to be a pain for a very specific runner every single game. That means you're going to want options. You might need to protect all three centrals and two remotes, all with multiple pieces of ice. You're going to want to have some ice that you can res early in the game. As Tollbooth on HQ, Tollbooth R&D turn one isn't the ideal start. I would say that any Glacier deck wants a bare minimum of 17 ice, but having more is often better. Here I'll just insert that a few episodes back we talked about an article from the big boy where 17 ice is a crutch. Well, in the original Picard pool, he says 19 ice is a crutch in the reboot pool. Uh, so at this point, we're just going to stick with that 17, not look to get more. You want your ice to be taxing. Eli, Heimdall, Tollbooth, Ichi, Viper but you don't want it to be so expensive on average that you can't afford to res early if you have to. You probably want to supplement your cheap taxing eyes with a few pieces of cheap binary eyes as well, if for nothing else than to protect HQ and R&D early on, or to defend your first economy assets. And always consider the relevant breakers in your metagame. Now, there is more to the article. He goes on to talk about three different glacier-style decks, the well-known Redcoats Hasbiroid deck, which is basically unbuildable in 2.1 at the moment, the uh, Replicating Perfection 
glacier deck, which used a lot of stuff from the second deluxe expansion, and then a third one that the author put together. But that's where we'll cut it off. If you want to read more, or if you want to uh, see these decks or whatever, as usual, the link will be in the show notes. Test Run, Waldemar 2.1. Well, with this new segment, what I hope to do is gather the discussions and threads I've been bringing them up and put them into actually creating a deck built for the 2.1 card pool, built for Reboot. Uh, maybe at some point I'll actually create a deck totally from scratch, but for right now, I'm just going to borrow the Waldemar Hasbiroid deck. This is the deck in the Ice Placement Part 2, Episode 14, where the big boy said, I've probably learned more about playing Corp well from this deck than any other. So what I'll do here is first present the comment from the person who posted the deck on NetrunnerDB, a user named Christman. Uh, this deck was posted in May of 2015. And as I do, I'm just going to try to read it straight. So recognize there will be references to cards that we don't have yet. Then I'll talk about what I swapped into the deck from the current card pool and why, uh, since this deck has cards up through the end of the third cycle. So here are the, here's the comment. The deck list may seem janky, but make no mistake, this is absolutely a top-tier deck. This deck is the sensation that is sweeping the German meta at the moment. From nowhere, a player called Waldemar swooped in and got third place at the North German Regionals. I used the deck myself since then and got fifth place at the West German Regionals with little to no training. Another player, Putzlappen, won a, won a qualifier tournament for the German Nationals with it. Let's talk mandatory upgrades. The deck has three of the agenda mandatory upgrades. It sounds like a joke, but this deck list should really make you reconsider the agenda. The goal here is to score the agenda the regular way. No tricks, just slow advance it up to six in a taxing scoring server. Here are some reasons why this is so powerful. If you get the agenda scored, you pretty much won the game. The fact that you can fast advance many agendas isn't even the main advantage. Just having four-click turns is huge. You can purge and install. You can keep developing the board while churning out agendas. You can advance a previously installed agenda, score it, and put another agenda in that scoring server ready to go next turn. The click advantage means you are likely to pull ahead of the runner very quickly. The advancement requirement of six sounds daunting since you need three turns to score it, but it's actually quite doable. You even have some leeway since you don't need to spend all of the clicks of those three turns to keep advancing the agendas. A move I like to do is install advance on the first turn to fake out an NAPD contract. Next turn, advance advance and use the third click to keep developing the board. This second turn will often seriously confuse the runners. Are you baiting them into a super taxing run on a, an APD? Is this an HB trap? Or is this just an awkward 5-3 score 
The final turn is then advance, 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 score. It gives you immediately a fourth click on that turn. Note how you have an extra click on every turn of the scoring process to let you develop the board state, play hedge fund, or whatever you need to keep tabs on. Your servers are taxing enough to keep an agenda safe for longer than just two turns. Especially noise often simply lacks the tools to seriously contest a server with ash and red herrings in it. Most players won't even try, not expecting the kind of advantage you will get from scoring it. Finally, the most important advantage of mandatory upgrades is that it is a two-pointer. I've never seen anybody comment on it, but this is huge. There are no three-pointers in the deck, which means both players need to score four agendas to win. If the runner does manage to break into your scoring server and steal the mandatory upgrades, they just get two points. And they will likely open up the scoring window to drive a second agenda through. The agenda seems like you are going out on a limb, but it is actually much less risky than most three-pointers people are happy to run with. The reason why there are three of them in here is because you want to have it on hand when that magical scoring window opens. You also want to be able to lose it in a central server run and still have that option. Finally, you can try to make the runner concede by scoring two mandatory upgrades. Why not? Asset Economy You have all the asset economy in the world. It will either make you rich, or it will make the runner poor. And you still will be rich. Runners usually really don't have the economy to trash all your assets. To twist the knife, you also have encryption protocol. There really is no good play against those. They can trash them, but they will waste money and time. They can keep them around, but that will make your assets untouchable. And as an added benefit, your upgrades like Ash, Red Herrings, and Crisium Grid become untouchable as well. You can easily get moments where the Ash Trace will be cheaper than its trash cost. That's why Red Herrings is here. This deck is all about financial supremacy, and Red Herrings allows you to leverage that even more. I had games where I played it on R&D, making the runners bite their lips as I parade my agendas in front of their eyes on a super-taxing, multi-access R&D run. Playing the assets requires some planning. Playing them naked may work against some shapers. Against criminals, you'll just create servers for security testing. Anarchs have the imp. Better protect your assets. Don't shy away from putting an Eve campaign behind a toll booth. Play your Adonis campaign in the scoring server. You want to create those win-win situations. Imp may sound like a problem, but it rarely is. It's very taxing for Anarchs to contest asset servers when they are protected by your eyes. Don't shy away from purging virus tokens to seal the deal. You have time. Cards you may have issues with are Scrubber and Wizard. Neither of those are very popular, though, and they just mean you need to tax by protecting the assets a bit better. Well, that's the comment on the deck. The basic analysis that I would provide 
as this would traditionally be classified as a glacier deck, right? That's what most people would call it. Now, using the big boys three axis system for classifying corp archetypes, we would say that this deck uses upgrades as a scoring method, naked assets as an economy strategy, and glacier as its speed. Based on the article we read from Stimhack there, it seems like uh, the point it's making there is you, you need upgrades to be your scoring method in a glacier deck. I'm not sure that's always true, but you will often see those two together. Well, what did I change? I had to make some significant changes. The uh, agenda suite, which is all two pointers, uh, we don't have the excellent NAPD contract yet. It's a 4 2, which makes the runner pay to steal the agenda. So I went with all the three twos that HB has that's three Project Vitruvius, three accelerated beta test, then the three mandatory upgrades. And I had to finish off with just one other two pointer, which of course is private security for us, which at least is a little tag punishment. This means that our agendas are a little less good and a little riskier if you fire the accelerated beta test than the original list, but it's not far off. For the economy, the original version uses three Adonis, three Pad Campaign, and three Hedge Fund, so I've kept those. It also uses three Eve Campaign, and we don't have that. Again, it comes in the fifth pack. So I've swapped in the less good, but still something, private contracts rather than the more click and influence intensive marked accounts that the article from Stimhack mentioned. As for other assets and operations, in the original build, the remaining six assets are three encryption protocol, which we can use, and three Jackson Howard. So maybe I do need to actually discuss what Jackson Howard does. This is a zero-cost, one-influence NBN asset with two powerful abilities. Click, draw two cards, and the other ability is you remove that card from the game, shuffle up to three cards from archives into R&D. Now that one is the showy ability because it lets him, at instant speed, even in a run on a server in which the runner is trying to trash him, pull anything, which you know, particularly agendas, out of archives, and the only way to keep that from happening is to trash him from HQ or R&D when he's not installed. Now, the other ability is also useful to draw two cards. Now, it's not always in the corpse interest to draw lots of cards, but if you're looking for the pieces that you need in the early game, it can be useful. So we don't have Jackson. Uh, he's considered as much an auto-include index as three hedge fund, basically. So in his place, I swapped in three archived memories. So I could at least try to weakly duplicate the part of his ability that's rescuing something from archives. For upgrades, in many ways, this is the key part of the deck. Remember, on the, on the three-axis system that the big boy provided, upgrades is the means of scoring. So the original version had two ash, two red herrings, and two of Wayland's Chrysium grid. Well, obviously we don't have that last one, so I just bumped up ash and red herrings to three each. Uh, Chrysium grid was, is one influence apiece, red herrings is two. So there is an even influence swap for those upgrades. Uh, the, the three influence from Jackson Howard is just gone because in Reboot, this HB identity, it's engineering the future, of course, only has 12 influence. 
ice. Well, this part's a little tricky. Uh, the original deck ran 15 ice, but 11 are not yet available. Here's my working theory, though. Now that I've taken some time to understand a little better what the function of each piece of ice is, I feel like I should be able to swap in similar available pieces, even if they're not quite as good as the originals. I did try to keep the subtypes comparable. Originally, it was six barriers. I've got that. Five code gates. I've got six. Three sentries. I've got two. And one mythic type in the original. So, of those 11 unavailable eyes, five are end the run, and five are taxing. The 11th is Excalibur, a mythic ice with, which has a subroutine that keeps the runner from making another run. So it's kind of like, a, it's really kind of like an upgrade. So I just swapped it for Chimera. As for the five end the run ice, there are two wraparound, which comes out of NBN. For a fractor, wraparound is binary strength zero. But if they don't have a fractor, you're only using AI breakers, it's strength seven. There's two of those. One bastion, a barrier that's uh, sort of on the bubble, usually costs three for corroder to break. And two IQ, which is variable depending on how big your hand size is in HQ, but it ranges from being either on the high end of binary, binary to the low end of analog and as a code gate. So for wraparound, I swapped in two ice wall from Wayland. So that's the same amount of influence. It's a little cheaper to res, and I'm not worried about AI breakers. For the bastion, I just swapped in another wall of static. It's more binary, a little cheaper to break, but similar. And for the IQ, I swapped in two Enigma because it is also a code gate that ends the run, although it's typically going to be uh, not as effective or expensive. Those seemed fairly similar. Now for the five taxing eyes, there were two Heimdall 2.0. I'll just put in Heimdall 1.0. It's not that much uh, less taxing. And then three, Architect. Well, there's no way I can possibly replace the effect of Architect, which lets you essentially install some cards for free if it doesn't get broken. But as for cost to break, the tax on it that, that runners are going to want to pay. Architect is only three to break for Garot. So I put in Ichi, which is five to break, uh, a second Viper, which is four, and then a Draco, which is three to dodge the trace. But, you know, it can also boost its, boost its power. So that seemed fairly reasonable. After putting this together, I sought some feedback on Discord, and uh, the big boy made these adjustments to my adjustments. For the agendas, the same. For the assets, the same. For the operations, took out two of the archived memories. And then for the ice, made several changes. Um, removed two ice wall to put in a wall of static and a Draco. Draco. Removed the two Enigma to put in another Viper and another toll booth. Removed the Chimera to put in an Ichi. And then added in two Roto Turret for uh, the two archived memories that were taken out. So that's a lot of changes. So it feels like I whiffed quite a bit on the ice composition. Most notably, the number of ice is a big change because uh, he actually added in two more. He said this, I think until Jackson comes out, you need 17 ice. Once you have him, you can go to 15. It's mainly that pre-Jackson, you don't want to click to draw too much because you get flooded. 
This means you won't draw as much ice, so you need more. Archived doesn't fix your flood problems. And so, here we're hearkening back to Jackson Howard's ability to draw two cards when you're looking for ice. And then when you overdraw, and you draw agendas, and you have to pitch them, you can recycle them back in. Taking out the two enigmas and putting in a third viper it seemed like a pretty significant change. And he said this, Generally, if you're on Viper, you want to be on it and not Enigma. If you have Viper and they have Yogg and Data Sucker, your Vipers will be no good if they can easily get counters. Because Viper is strength 4, Yogg is strength 3, they need a Data Sucker to get through Viper. So you don't want other ice that dies to Yogg, that is to say, Enigma, because that won't help you stop the runner from farming Data Suckers. And as for spending the extra two influence from wraparound on a third toll booth, rather than two ice wall like I chose to do, he said two ice wall is also okay. I think either choice is fine. Toll booth is just really good in the small card pool. So I've actually, for the version I've been using, sort of hybridized his suggestions with my original ideas. I've kept his sentry ideas. That's two Draco, two Ichi, two Roto Turret. I've opted for my original barrier idea, two Heimdall, two Ice Wall, two Wall of Static. And I've split the difference on the code gates. I ditched the Enigma to keep his three Viper, but I'm running on only two Toll Booth. Now, here's the part where I have traditionally gotten hung up. What are we doing with all of this ice? Where are we playing it? Because it matters. As the big boy said when he was first learning the game, and was using this deck to learn, because it has so little ice, only 15 in the original version, when 17 is too much, 17 in this version, when 19 would be too much, you have to be choosy about where you place it. Where are we playing it? For R&D, there was an article that we read from Reddit where the rule of thumb is that you want a three-credit tax early and a six-credit tax later. So Heimdall could provide all of that tax, but if we need a less expensive early tax, Viper is what we want to put on here. For HQ, it's probably the binary and the run ice. Ice wall, wall of static, roto turret. We don't have a code gate that's a binary ETR. A Draco can also function as this uh, if they don't have a, I mean, if they don't break the trace, right? It's a strength, it's a three strength trace. Um, a faster deck, or maybe use one or two of these on the scoring remote to get some early scores, but we're shooting for mandatory upgrades. So maybe agendas will pile up a little, which is why I think you want the binary ETR on HQ. But if you end up with a couple of accelerated beta tests early in the game, you know, maybe you do slap one on a remote to try to score one out and try to res some bigger ice. For your small remotes, your asset remotes, a binary and the run might help early, but ideally by late in the game, there's so many that you can run them without protection. Again, naked assets is your economy. And for the scoring remote, it's all about the tax. So you probably want a couple of ice on here as soon as possible. Viper, again, is good early. It's got three credit tax. Maybe Draco. It's uh, at three credits if they try to run the trace. Uh, you can also boost it to make it higher strength if you want. And then Ichi and Tollbooth could maybe come on a little bit later when uh, when you got a little more money. But hey, if you have some other ideas for how to play out these pieces of ice or play out this deck, drop me a line, let me know. 
Red herrings. Just a couple of small errors and adjustments from last week's episode as I was listening back to it. I spoke of Heimdall 1.0 as an example of analog taxing ice early because you can click to go through it. And then when I was sorting them later, I listed it as an analog and the run ice, which is in fact what the graphic shows. I'll update that graphic so that it shows it correctly. Uh, what threw me is that it's the only barrier in the current 2.1 pool that isn't actually an end the run ice because bioroids are always going to be taxing. They don't have hard end the run subroutines. And when discussing the weirdness of Chum and Sensei, I should have also mentioned that in a way, they're all, they are also both kind of end the run ice. And it's assuming that they're a second position or further out in a server. If the next piece is already rezzed, and the runner knows they can't break it. Or even if it isn't rest and they think they might not be able to break it, they're more likely just to jack out after they've run through the chum or jack out after the end the run subroutine has been added from Sensei. So, I mean, the, the ice itself didn't directly end the run, but it induced the runner to, to jack out and end the run themselves. So again, just weirdness all around. That's why I've got them listed separately. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Music is from Alexi Action. The website for the uh, podcast is netrunner2.1.com. You want to play online, play the Reboot Project, go to reteki.fun. But really, before that, you probably want to go to the, Reteki, the Reboot Discord server so that you can find people to play games with. There are people around most of the day if you just ask. You can contact me on multiple locations. My name is Alberman. My email, the email address is anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. And as we go into the AstroScript pilot program, it's the final part of the introduction where we actually talk about the beanstalk in a little more detail with a couple of articles about that. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Moving upwards. Stretching 70,000 kilometers from Earth's surface into geocentric orbit, the New Angeles Space Elevator is the single greatest engineering achievement in human history and the most important piece of infrastructure in the solar system. The Beanstalk, as it is colloquially known, was first envisioned by Jack Wayland as a way to make traveling into Earth's orbit easier and cheaper than the expensive, finicky, and inefficient chemical rockets of yesteryear. It has since served as the springboard for the colonization endeavors on Luna and Mars. Construction began as soon as Wayland's investors could decide on a suitable location. Due to the orbital mechanics of constructing a space elevator, the structure needed to be located somewhere along Earth's equator. After nixing one plan to build it on an artificial island in the Pacific, the corporation ultimately settled on Volcan Cayambe in Ecuador, a mountain roughly 64 kilometers northeast of the capital, Quito. Ground was broken on the project only two years after Wayland's initial proposal. As the project progressed, 
a small city called New Angeles, populated mainly by engineers, technicians, laborers, and their families, sprouted at the foot of the volcano. The beanstalk itself is like a thin, composite fiber ribbon stretched taut between two anchors, the root and the castle. A bucky-weave lattice clad in hundreds of thin, molecularly bonded layers of advanced composites makes the core both incredibly strong and flexible, allowing the beanstalk to endure the incredible natural stresses of gravity and momentum acting upon it. One of the composites woven into the bucky-weave lattice is graphene, which can conduct electricity to run the maglev lines that are the lifeblood of off-world commerce. Workers, colonists, tourists, and materiel travel daily up to the castle at the end of the beanstalk and beyond to Luna and Mars, while raw materials, including the precious and expensive helium-3 isotope, come down. Unfortunately, the beanstalk measures less than two dozen meters wide and can only support a small handful of maglev lines. This, combined with the travel time to and from each station, limits the number of maglev cars, known colloquially as bean pods, that can operate per day. As a result, there is a near-permanent backlog of people, corporations, and government entities eagerly awaiting their turn to climb the beanstalk. The bean pods themselves run day and night to carry people and cargo to and from orbit. A typical passenger bean pod is a long, narrow, cigar-shaped vehicle just over 20 meters long and roughly 5 meters in diameter. It has three decks amidships, each with 12 acceleration couches situated around the deck's circumference. Each deck also has a head and a drinks dispenser for the comfort of the passengers. The pointed caps on each end of the bean pod contain the pod's environmental and mechanical systems, as well as a simple radar system that can guide an unexpectedly detached bean pod back to Earth by way of a paraglider ram chute. Thankfully, a bean pod has never become disconnected, nor had need for the emergency systems. Along with being relatively comfortable and extremely safe, bean pods are also incredibly energy efficient. Each is equipped with a power generation and reclamation system that generates nearly enough electricity on a downstock run to provide power for another car's trip upstock. Cargo pods are larger, bulkier bean pods that carry raw materials or commodities up and helium-3 down. They follow a larger, different set of maglev tracks that can stop at Midway or the castle or even propel Luna or Mars-bound containers straight into space like a slingshot. Cargo pods are typically unmanned and have no passenger or crew accommodations. There are, however, some cargo pods that carry cargoes delicate or sensitive enough that they require security or constant monitoring for one reason or another. These are usually manned by bioroids and equipped with the most rudimentary of crew compartments. 
Although the New Angeles space elevator was envisioned by Jack Wayland and built by his eponymous company, the Beanstalk is currently owned and operated by an independent agency called the Space Elevator Authority, or SEA. On paper, the SEA is not beholden to any single country or corporation. It was chartered to ensure equal access to the Beanstalk by any and all who could afford to pay its rates. However, some point to the steady stream of Beanstalk royalties into Wayland accounts as proof that the agency cannot be as independent as it claims to be. The men and women of the SEA are largely refugees from the wars on Mars, or Earth loyalists, and they operate every facet of the space elevator, from maintenance to administration. SEA technicians and engineers keep the bean pods running on time and at peak efficiency. SEA security officers, known as yellow jackets, thanks to the high-visibility reflective jackets they wear, keep the peace and respond quickly to the slightest hint of a disturbance at any of the three major stations or on the beanstalk itself. Gateway to the Stars The Root The Root is the beanstalk's anchor, a complex of chic, eye-wateringly expensive boutiques, five-star restaurants, exclusive living areas, municipal offices, and kilometers of brightly lit, highly secure corridors built into the heart of Cayambe. Atop the mountain's peak stands the Plaza del Cielo, an architectural marvel 4,700 meters above sea level that is crammed day and night with travelers, tourists, the occasional busking musician or performance artist, and sightseers watched over by a mixture of local police officers and the ever-vigilant Yellow Jackets. At the center of the ornate plaza lies Earth Station, a huge glass-domed SEA complex that serves the planet-side terminus of the beanstalk. Towering above all this mountain splendor is the beanstalk, its dull gray mass rising from the center of Earth Station into the infinite sky. Midway Station The first stop after leaving Earth Station is Midway Station, a large and bustling space station located in geostationary orbit roughly 35,000 kilometers above the route. The station marks the halfway of the beanstalk and was the base from which the first bucky weave ribbons of the elevator's tether were constructed. Because the beanstalk was essentially knitted from Midway Station down to Earth and up to the castle, the maglev lines don't pass completely through the Midway Point. Instead, incoming passengers must disembark and then board another bean pod to continue their trip. Surrounding the station are numerous shops, boutiques, hotels, and entertainment complexes that cater to travelers with long layovers, or those who want to experience the excitement of microgravity, but have neither the taste nor the money for space travel. The station's major employer is NBN, which maintains a major network server hub as well as half a dozen broadcast stations. 
The central location of the station provides excellent access to the Beanstalk's technical infrastructure and helps NBN better serve those along the elevator's entire length. Despite its reputation as a middle-class enclave and its exhaustive list of average to bargain-basement bourgeoisie amenities, Midway Station still has its share of wealth, intrigue, and power brokering, and the wealthy denizens of the castle can often be found slumming in what they consider the station's quaint and tacky commercial districts. The Castle At the very top of the beanstalk, over 70,000 kilometers from the route, hangs the Challenger Planetoid. Playfully referred to as the castle, a nod to the giant's castle at the top of the legendary fairy tale beanstalk, the Challenger planetoid is a huge, craggy asteroid measuring roughly five kilometers across. It was towed into orbit during the beanstalk's construction to act as the structure's counterweight and was initially inhabited only by engineers and construction workers. The largest and most important structure on the near side of the castle is the Challenger Beanstalk Terminal, which serves as the Beanstalk's terminus and includes all of its amenities, as well as technical and maintenance spaces for bean pods. In addition, a number of very famous and upscale businesses thrive here, thanks to the constant flow of traffic and the exclusive surroundings. The system-famous Castle Club, with its renowned bar and cabaret, is located a short tube-lev ride away. Owned and operated by casino mogul and trillionaire playboy Gianfranco Calderoli, the Castle Club is a massive carousel composed of two broad, triple-decked, disc-shaped habitats nearly 200 meters across. Each disc spins counter to the other, creating enough gravity through centripetal acceleration to provide comfort and accessibility for visitors, not to mention some gyroscopic stabilization as well. There is also the exclusive five-star Earthview restaurant, the less famous but still fantastic Cloudtop nightclub, and a selection of other expensive clubs, bars, and restaurants. Along with the entertainment and shopping, the complex also contains the carousel boardrooms, executive meeting rooms available for rent, and the High Frontier, a large upscale hotel and convention center. The Big Four and many smaller corporations keep offices here as well. Outside the great wheels of the complex itself are a number of low-gravity attractions, such as a ballet theater and hotels catering to various clientele. The rest of the planetoid is given over to various kinds of industrial and commercial concerns, known as the far-side facilities. The Challenger Mines, a collection of surface dome habitats and a maze of underground tunnels, continue to supply seacons to orbital construction facilities nearby. The home port of the Challenger Memorial Shuttle, along with a small shipyard, is serviced by a light maglev line for passengers and light freight continuing on to starport Kaguya on the moon.